Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Coffee Podcast, your weekly blend of motivation, encouragement, education, and insight into all things medicine for junior doctors and medical students in South Africa. Welcome to episode 12. Okay, so in this week's Coffee with Consultants feature, we're going off brand a bit and interviewing a registrar in our featured specialty rather than a consultant. Nonetheless, this week's episode features a surgical specialty that so many of you, the Dr. Coffee audience, have requested that I simply could not wait for an opening with a consultant. And so I'm very pleased to introduce our guest for this week's episode, which is all about the path to specializing in pediatric surgery. Dr. Jason McMaster is currently a registrar in pediatric surgery at the Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital in South Africa. After completing his internship and community service years, Dr. McMaster held a medical officer post in the Pediatric Burns Unit at Chris Harney Baragwanath Academic Hospital, where he discovered his calling and passion in life. It was a great privilege to interview Dr. McMaster for this podcast, and I'm sure you'll find the interview extremely interesting. Before we dive into the contents of today's episode, I'd like to give a special mention to the sponsors of the Dr. Coffee Podcast. Our first sponsor on the Dr. Coffee podcast, I'm pleased to introduce you to FlashMed. FlashMed is a new type of medical study flashcards, pre-packaged and formatted to assist you to be more effective as a student and ultimately help you to become a better doctor. Comprising pharmacology revision flashcards, clerking sheets, muscle anatomy flashcards and revision notes, amongst others, FlashMed products are printed using the highest quality paper and each set consists of 50 flashcards or pages. You can find FlashMed on Instagram at @flashmedsa and order direct from them via DM with nationwide delivery. For this and other episodes, I'm also pleased and proud to announce our partnership with Wardworks. Wardworks is a free patient list and task management app that allows doctors to simplify the way they work. Join the hundreds if not thousands of South African doctors who are using Wardworks to keep track of and easily access patients information, location and Wardwork. There's a reason that more than a quarter of a million tasks have been completed using Wardworks in less than two years. Wardworks is a web-based app that can be accessed through your internet browser on mobile or desktop simply by visiting wardworks.app. But most convenient of all is to find the downloadable applications on the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. You'll also find some very useful perks to using Wardworks, that's P-E-R-X, such as discounts on scrubs and stethoscopes and other cool stuff that makes being a Doggateller that much more rewarding. Thank you to our sponsors. And now back to today's featured speciality, pediatric surgery. Whether you've had any exposure to pediatric surgery or ped surge in your studies or working career or not, it should please you to know that the training available to surgeons in South Africa who wish to specialize in ped surge is excellent and compares favorably with high income countries who often send their surgeons to South Africa to further their skills. Listening to Dr. McMaster, it was encouraging and motivating to learn just how highly esteemed the South African clinical setting is regarded by the world. We would do well to appreciate the opportunities we get as junior doctors and medical students, even amongst our challenges. I'm excited for you to hear this week's podcast. And so without further ado, here is Dr. Jason McMaster. Welcome to the Dr. Coffee podcast, Dr. Jason McMaster. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here today. It's wonderful to have you as a guest on the program. Um, our audience have been requesting PED surgery. 
trauma surgery was one of our more popular episodes. So it seems that there's a definite hunger for uh, surgeons on the podcast. And after a, a slew of physicians, I'm sure they'll be very relieved to have another surgeon on. Uh, so thank you so much for making yourself available and for your time this fine afternoon. Cool. We're here at the wonderful Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital in Parktown. And with all of our guests, the first question that I'd like to ask is uh, how and where you did your medical training and your junior doctor years. So let's start where you went to med school. So I was in Cape Town. I went to uh, UCT. It was a very good uh, six years, extremely rewarding. I learned a lot and I had a lot of fun as well. And um, for my internship years, I went to Barrow. Um, there were a, a bunch of us uh, at UCT uh, who all came up together. Um, Barrow has like this myth in Cape Town and maybe elsewhere as well um, of being like this jungle. If you can make it at Barrow, you can make it anywhere. And I think there are a few of us who are excited by the challenge um, of going to the terrible city of Joburg, as all Cape Townians think, uh, and taking on the challenge uh, of being an intern at Barrow. And um, yeah, it was a good time, a difficult time, as I'm sure every Barrow intern will attest to. Um, but yeah, overall, I'd say it was a good, good two years. So you alluded to a little bit of a myth around yeah. Barra. Can you maybe just expound on that a bit? So uh, the, what I want to ask is, what had you heard about Barra that was true? And what had you heard about Barra that was a complete fabrication? Sure. So uh, at UCT, at least, Barra has this reputation of being, yeah, like this jungle of a hospital that is crazy busy, um, that'll push you more than anywhere else. And, uh, and, and all that is true. Uh, in my two years, I found Barrett to be a jungle uh, that pushes you like you thought you couldn't be pushed before. So that was all accurate. Uh, there's also kind of a myth um, of it being quite tough, um, being quite difficult, um, like physically in terms of calls and mentally as in, in terms of like coping with the workload. And that is also true. Uh, it's, it's a tough place to work, especially as a junior doctor, um, but it is good. Um, when I've chatted to kind of students who've been looking at places of doing internship uh, prior to this, um, I generally say, like, in, in my opinion, eight out of ten interns at Barra come out of the experience um, having, like, grown a lot, having really enjoyed it, having learned a huge amount about medicine and, and about yourself, as you can only do in, like, really tough circumstances, and they would do it again. Wow. Um, but that being said, that's two out of ten who, uh, for those people, it was a traumatic experience that wasn't worth the time. Um, and I think for any person, when you make these kind of decisions, you have to be honest with yourself. And it's not acknowledging weakness, it's just acknowledging difference in character. Some people um, can like really thrive and enjoy being pushed perhaps too far, um, but for some people, too far is too far. Um, so it's a great time, um, but I think you need to go into it with, uh, with open eyes. Okay, so completed your two years of internship at Barra. Yeah. Um, what was your enduring memory of Barra? Like, what was your outstanding lesson that you learned at Barra? If I can. Ask oh you. man, so many over the two years. The one that I come back to because it it oftentimes gets me through a difficult call, um, is is not to trust yourself after midnight. Oh, like wow. not to trust your thoughts after midnight because your mind goes to dark places, and there's actually a really interesting paper published on mental health after midnight uh, and you have really terrible thoughts and one thing sticks out to me my first rotation was surgery as an intern and I was in trauma and it was 
And it still is. It's a crazy, crazy place. And you yeah. learn a lot. But man, you are pushed like never before. And it was 3 a.m. It was a weekend. And I was wheeling a drunk, assaulted patient to CT scan at like 3 a.m. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I am becoming a radiation oncologist. They make the most money and they spend the least amount of time at work possible. That is what I am doing. Um, and... Uh, I woke up like after the hour nap that I had and it was the next day and the sun always comes up. Uh, every call ends finish. Exactly. Yeah. Every call ends. The sun always rises. I thought to myself, like, how stupid. You hate <laughs> anything related to radiation oncology. Carry on, you know. And um, so, yeah, that was one of the biggest things. Don't, don't trust yourself after midnight. Wow. You're going to have bad thoughts. Just learn to ignore it um, and carry on. It has been helpful uh, in giving that advice to my wife uh, with, uh, with our kids when it's uh, one in the morning and she's up again and she's having terrible thoughts about how terrible it is to be a parent, don't trust yourself after midnight. In the morning, the sun comes up uh, and you'll regret the thoughts you had. I love that because it has broad application to anything, even a medical student listening now, yeah, yeah. You know, thinking how rotten their, their life is because they're studying for an exam. It's like, yeah. don't trust your thoughts after midnight. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so internship. And then did you stay on at Barrow or did you go further afield? No, I... Uh, I went close to home. We lived in Melville and I did my comp serve at Helen Joseph Hospital. Um, so by this point in my career, I was married. I got married in my first year of internship. Um, and uh, my wife's job was in Joburg. Her entire family was in Joburg. So we did our best and we bought a house in Joburg. So I love that she's been available or a part of the ride for all of your junior years. So oh, yeah. she's seen you through all of these times. Oh, yeah, you should uh, interview her. She'd probably give you a more accurate idea of how my <laughs> medical career has gone than I would. I have uh, rose-colored glasses to anything medicine. Yeah. It helps help sometimes. <laughs> um, and, Does uh, she ever tell you to stop talking about medicine when you get home? No, no. Uh, thankfully, she doesn't. Um, we'll chat about it later, but we have a rule that when I'm at home, I'm a husband and a dad, yes. unless obviously I'm studying or yes. doing any work, and when I'm when I'm at work, I'm a doctor. Okay, so Helen, um, was Helen a place that you chose specifically yeah, so for Yeah, so I put it as first choice. I was yeah. like, we live, in, um, we live in Melville, and it was right down the road, um, and I wanted a change of scenery after Barra. Um, and so, yeah, Helen, I had heard good things about Helen Joseph Hospital, so thankfully, I put it as first choice, and uh, provided the deed on my house to say, this is why I want to stay in, in Barra, and the Department of Health listened, and I was placed at Barra for my comp serve, which was a good two years, um, the entire period was spent in the emergency department. Um, my first six months were there, and I was due to go to internal medicine. And something deep within me uh, uh, really loathed the thought of going and doing internal medicine for six months. Um, so I managed to swap um, with someone very unlucky who went to internal medicine for six months, and I got to stay in the ED. Uh, it was a the Helen Joseph emergency department was and still is a very very good emergency department. Um, and again, I learned a massive amount um, during that time. Again, hard, hard work. Anyone who's ever worked there knows uh, the nights are long, the calls are long. There's a lot of responsibility even for a commserve in that emergency department. And yet you mentioned that yeah. you had heard some great things about Helen. What were some of those things? So for my mind, I, I, I've heard good things about the surgical department. Yeah. So I don't know if maybe you had already had in your heart that surgery was where you wanted to go. Not at this point. I think um, I'd, heard, I'd heard good things about almost all the departments. Um, and I, I still really wasn't sure. I was interested in surgery and I was interested in, in like a career um, in treating kids. 
obviously Rahima Musa and and uh, Helen Joseph can be paired. Um, but yeah, it was like also a marriage of convenience. It was in Joburg, it was close to home, and the departments that I'd heard about were good. Okay. Yeah. So um, you said you did two years of community service, so I assume that there was some concern. Oh, sorry, no, no. I did one year of community oh, service, okay. split into six-month blocks. Okay. So, so not extra time. No, no. Okay. Thankfully, not Helen <laughs> Joseph. So, yeah, normally you you have an experience of two departments at Helen Joseph at six months each. So okay. uh, I opted to stay on in mine, so I got a year of emergency uh, department time. And yeah, like I said, it was good. Like you learn, you do learn a huge amount there, like treating the undifferentiated patient. And it's a completely mixed ED. It's medical, surgical, and trauma. Um, so the scope is huge. And it just... Uh, you learn to become really confident with recess, um, really confident in treating like the undifferentiated sick patient. So for someone who was unsure of what they wanted to do, I think it was a good fit. I got to see a bit of everything mm. um, and have some fun and learn a lot. And, and when isn't recess important when yes. you're a doctor? You know? Of course. Maybe if you're a dermatologist, but everything else. And we've, uh, we've said so much on the podcast before that your exposure is so important. You, you oftentimes, even as a student, get to choose what exposure you get, you know, you just stay on a little bit later or go to a specific site and you do get exposed to various things. Um, now let's fast forward a little bit. So you sure. currently are a registrar uh, yes. in pediatric surgery. So at what point did you make that decision that that was um, what you wanted to do? So Simon, there's the saying that I've heard a few pediatric surgeons say, and uh, it's pediatric surgery chooses you, you don't choose pediatric surgery. And it's interesting, you know, talking to a few of my colleagues, that's happened quite a lot. Um, it, my story is that um, I was doing medical officer time in ICU. I knew I was more surgically inclined. Um, I'd considered plastics and reconstructive surgery, but at the same time, I really enjoyed the exposure to kids that I had. Part of your medical officer time in ICU at Barra is spending time in the pediatric uh, burns ICU unit. Um, and I ended up spending a lot of time there and really enjoying it, enjoying the critical care aspect of it, but two, enjoying working with kids, um, and then three, in, enjoying this kind of surgery aspect of treating kids with burns. Um, and I found myself seeing the pediatric surgeons on ward rounds and being like, man, I wish I was a part of that gang. They look so cool, you know? <laughs> and they did, like, they carry little boxes. I suppose I say they. Now we yeah. carry our little boxes with our loops in, and you know, and everyone knows what they look uh, like. Tubes of our rocks in the pocket. Exactly, tubes of rocks in the pocket. There's one in my bag right now. <laughs> and um, yeah, like a slew of events over like a two month period made me think, well, let me let me see what it's like. And I applied for an MO job. There was a, a colleague who said to me, um, you know, have you thought about pediatric surgery? I think you'd be a good fit. I remember distinctly saying to her, her name's Melissa. I said to her, Melissa, do I look like I want to work that hard? And uh, But it stayed in my mind that Melissa says I'd be a good fit. And it's just, people kept on making little comments. Um, uh, one of the consultants in, uh, in ICU at Barrett, Peds ICU, said, oh, you remind me a lot of someone I know who's a pediatric surgeon. All those little things happened. I thought, let me just apply. Uh, so I applied, got the job, and uh, my first day... Uh, one of the consultants, Chris at, at Barra, I uh, said, oh, welcome. How long do you plan to be with us for? And I said, I don't know. And it's, I think, three and a half years later, and I'm still here. So Wonderful. Yeah. So um, how many years of MO time did you do before becoming a registrar? 
I did exactly two years to the day. Uh, started the first of January, and then two years later, first of January started reg time. Yeah. And what was the path like? What expectations did they have as you were doing your MO time? in order to become a registrar in pediatric surgery, for those sure. who are planning a career in pediatric surgery, how many months of MO time do they need? And is there any courses that you felt, uh, there might be some that are prerequisites, yeah. but any that you felt lent an advantage to you? Okay. I'm going to go through what I think, if I were to go back, what the perfect mm. path would Wonderful. be. Wonderful, yeah. And then my path was, was quite different. So I think like the perfect path would be to do your internship. Really... Anywhere where you think you're going to enjoy it and learn a lot. I don't think internship matters too much in your future career. In terms of ComServe, I then try and select a place that has a surgery rotation. Um, places that often get lauded as something like a Clackstop, where you go there as a ComServe, you rotate through surgery, and you're not just an intern working with a ComServe salary, you're actually getting involved. So I recommend doing your ComServe somewhere where you can rotate through a surgical discipline. And then from there, I'd recommend actually getting an MO job in general surgery. Um, the thing about pediatric surgery is it used to be a general surgery fellowship. You do general surgery first and then, two and years then exactly extra, two yeah. years extra time to become a pediatric surgeon. That changed in the mid-2000s, okay. that it's its own speciality that requires four and now five years. But as a prerequisite to entry, you need to have general surgery intermediates. Before you even get invited to an interview for pediatric surgery, oh, wow. reg time, you need to have general surgery. Because you need those skills as well. I mean, yeah. from, from the time that you work as a registrar, you're going to be working in surgery. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they expect a good baseline level of surgical knowledge, intensive care knowledge. That's part of the intermediate requirements as well to get into pediatric surgery. So I think the ideal route would be MO time as a general surgery medical officer and spending as much time as you can in theater, getting your hands ready, kind of finding your feet in theater and spending time cutting. The difficulty is trying to get all the points needed to write intermediates. Mm. You need six months of trauma time, you need one year of general surgery time, and you need six months of ICU time. Sure. Like the perfect place for anyone in Joburg would be somewhere like Charlotte McLeake, mm. where if you are a... MO in surgery, they will rotate you through those um, units. We'll do, I see you. Exactly. We'll do within the, the kind of the agreement is within two years of MO time there, you would have rotated through enough places to be able to write intermediates. And once you have your intermediates, you'll be able to um, you'll be able to then get into pediatric what surgery. What about other surgical disciplines as a foundation? So let's say you did ComServe in Obzingani yeah. and you were cutting ten Caesars a, a night. Would that time help and, and count? towards surgical um, points or not really? No, so it wouldn't count towards general surgery intermediate time. I mean, look, it would it would count for that individual for them to know that this is where I want to go. Yeah. And it would count in terms of being in theater. So theater is an extremely uh, intimidating place for someone who isn't accustomed to it. And I think I remember going into theater as a third year or whatever it was and being terrified of like, I don't want to touch anything. I don't want to do anything wrong. Um, and it, the more time you spend in theater, the more time you spend with your hands in a patient, the more comfortable you get. And whether that's an ENT, Obzingani, plastics, whatever it may be, it's, it's going to be helpful in the long run. Um, in terms of like actually getting objective points to write an exam, Obzingani wouldn't count for general surgery. Sure. Um, 
but yeah, it would still be helpful to the individual. Okay. So that would be my recommendation. MO time, accumulate those um, uh, kind of prerequisite points to write your intermediates, write yes. your intermediates, and then yes. apply. The, the other path, which isn't uh, better or worse, it's just different, is that we have quite a few people coming across from general surgery registrar time. So what they will do is they will do a bit of MO time in, in surgery. Um, you don't need intermediates to get a general surgery registrar, you just need primaries. So they'll do their general surgery uh, MO time for like six months, write general surgery primaries, apply for a registrar job in general surgery, get the job, um, and then within the first kind of two years of general surgery reg time, write their intermediates. Once they got their intermediates, they got their ticket, and then they're going to apply to yeah. pediatric surgery. Now, I realize that I'm asking this question, and the, the immediate weakness is that you're not a, a consultant that sits on any of these boards that makes yeah. the decision. But yeah. do you have a sense of how competitive the process is for all of this that you, you're talking about? Because you're saying this is the ideal route. Yes. I imagine that there's more than one person that says, well, this is the ideal plan. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah. So how competitive is that road? Um, so like, there's so many variables that go into the like competition for posts and i think competition for posts these days is is tougher than it ever has been the general surgery registrar route um i don't think is exceptionally competitive i think if you have primaries um, and you have some general surgery mo time sooner or later you're going to get a general surgery registrar job um, so i think what i would recommend is start mo time in general surgery write your primaries as soon as you can, then start applying for a registrar post, mm. but like don't rest on your laurels, <laughs> you know, apply yeah. for an ICU MO post so you can get one more notch to write intermediates. And maybe before they're willing to give you a job in general surgery, you've already got all your points and you can write intermediates yeah. because you've rotated through general surgery as an MO, you've got your trauma time, you applied and rotated as an ICU MO as well. Um, and then you say, actually guys, I don't need this job anymore. I'm gonna go straight to pediatric surgery. Um, so in terms of competition, I don't think general surgery is, is very difficult, um, but some people have found it difficult, right? And, and the, the example I gave of getting your points as an MO, I know people have done while they've been waiting for posts, whereas other people have done comserv uh, surgery, written primaries, and gotten a post in general surgery uh, registrar program straight out of comserv. Oh. Um, so I think the thing would be like it doesn't hurt anyone to apply. Sure. Uh, know the road you're on, have the path laid out if you don't get accepted, um, but always apply, see what happens. But you're also proof that even if you don't follow that ideal path, that there is, the, yeah. you know, there, there's, there's hope. Yeah. So no one needs to feel like they crushed it, devastated if, they, if it doesn't go according to plan, right? No, man. And I think, don't think you ever crushed or devastated. There's a, um, an Obzingani consultant in Cape Town, a wonderful woman, and she actually did three years of reg time in psychiatry decided you know what this isn't good for my mental health to be seeing people <laughs> with this kind of mental health and uh she stopped did mo time in um in uh Obzingani, started reg time and graduated and was the oldest of her graduating class but she had made the right decision you know i don't think it's ever too late and i don't think you're ever on the wrong road um like you never know you think you're on the wrong road and then one day because the only job you could get was an ent mo you're in ENT theater and you're like, actually, I want to do this. I don't want to do that other thing I thought I wanted to do. Wow. You know, yeah. So you're never on the wrong road. There's yeah. lessons to be learned everywhere. Everything happens for a reason. There we go. So um, we know just from the name what pediatric surgery, mm -hmm. we know a little bit about what it is. Sure, so sure. we know the pa patient population. We know yeah. that you're operating kind of from north 
to 16 years of age. Um, but if you were to explain to somebody in detail uh, what pediatric surgery is all about, give us a, a rundown of what it is. Sure. So I, I don't think it's helpful that students and interns get such little exposure to pediatric surgery. And that's probably where it's a bit of an unknown entity. Um, in my undergrad, we had like a one-month pediatric surgery block, but the guys at Vitz here, from what I've seen of the students I've taken for tuts and things, they don't get any pediatric surgery time. Yeah. They, they see a bit of it in their pediatric A couple block. of lectures. And exactly, it. and that's it. Um, so that doesn't help. And I find a lot of people really don't know what pediatric surgery is. I'll try and explain it as best I can, uh, beyond we operate on kids. Because <laughs> a lot of people operate on kids. Yeah. Um, so pediatric surgery, and pediatric surgeons love to say this, is, is the last kind of true general surgery. So like you said, the age range is quite large. So like from day one of life, from day of birth, up until it varies, but yeah, up until around 16. Um, these days, even before being born, there's fetal surgery that is done as well. So yeah, it sure. goes even, uh, even earlier Sorry than day one of life. Sorry to limit you. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah. um, and, and pretty much we are the general surgeons of, of kids. Um, we operate in almost every cavity of the body, whereas adults have a urologist, uh, a cardiothoracic surgeon, um, the general surgeon doing, you know, vascular and then colorectal and then upper GRT. All of those things are encompassed within pediatric surgery. Wow. So a pediatric surgeon would actually treat a urological problem yeah. more than a urologist or a yeah, yeah. So. I mean, there's a bit of overlap. Uh, as a urologist, you can then do a fellowship in pediatric urology. Okay. Um, but then as a pediatric surgeon, yeah. you can do a fellowship in pediatric urology. Yeah. Um, but for example, at, in the VIT circuit, uh, the vast majority of pediatric urology is managed by uh, pediatric surgeons. I think it, like we, the places we don't operate are fewer than the places that we do. Okay. So I think it would be like brain, face, bone heart that's it that's wow. what we that's what we don't touch and, and everything, everything else everything else is our domain wow. yeah um and that's really appealing for some people yes. some people like like the the freshness and because general surgery i mean even though it's called general surgery is now very much getting a shrinking territory yeah, yeah. as as further suspects develop you know we've got head and neck surgeons that do everything head and neck whereas general surgery used to do that yeah sure yeah i mean i think these days a general surgeon who wants to work in a city almost has to be with fellowship in uh, GIT or colorectal or vascular, whatever it may be, uh, in order to have a practice. Um, as you go more peripheral, the true general general surgeon is appreciated more. Mm. Um, but I think in urban settings, you almost have to be a specialist, um, a subspecialist. Pediatric surgery is kind of slowly heading that way. And I think if you were to go to the exceptional centers, um, kind of in the first world and, and and it's starting here as well you'll get the colorectal pediatric surgeon um kind of the the urological surgeon and for kids as well do you think we'll ever have like a children's hospital that go, uh, dedicated just to burns or dedicated just to grt stuff it's kind of a hierarchy of needs sure. i think um before we get to that kind of point there's a lot kind of that needs to be done in the health system before before we were to get there mm. it's not kind of impossible but at the moment, I think it would be kind of be unlikely. Okay. And it's also, it's a relatively small subspect. So you can be a pediatric colorectal surgeon, 
but it would be better to kind of have a colorectal unit within a pediatric surgery department as opposed to an isolated center. In the States, they do have isolated centers. There's, there's centers that just do hyperspadias, for example, um, but we're not, we're not close to that here, I wouldn't think. Mm. Um, they have both the resources and the larger patient population yeah, to work with. Yeah, makes exactly. sense. Yeah. Okay, so <clears throat> what is a day in the life of Dr. Jason McMaster look like? How much time do you spend actually in theater operating on your patients? How much time do you spend in the wards? How much time do you spend in clinic? How is your time divided up? So I think on average, if I were to just think of it roughly, out of all my awake hours at work, and it varies from hospital to hospital, I'd say 50 to 60% of that time is spent in theater, which is great. As a surgeon, that's where you want to be. Um, you learn a lot in clinic, and clinic is important, but no one actually likes being in clinic. You know, We want to um, have our hands busy and we want to be in theater. So I'd say like 50 to 60% of the time is in theater, um, and then the rest of the time is divided between um, clinic and being in the wards. Um, so an average day would be kind of start work between five or six in the morning, um, see all the patients under my care in the hospital, um, and then be ready for a consultant round between seven and 7.30. And then again, walk through all the patients, this time with the consultant, um, kind of giving a summary of the past 24 hours of this patient's uh, stay in the hospital. Um, and from that, you kind of get your work for the day. Um, at most centers, that work's then done by like the MO or the intern. Here at Nelson, we don't have, so we'll cover that work at some point during the day. And then... Four days out of five, theater starts eight o'clock sharp. And you'll be in theater, you hope, until the end of the day. And in between cases, uh, run around and do a blood here, do a gas there, put up a drip. If there's no one else available to do it. So that's four out of five days. Then one out of five days, we have clinic. So it's the same story, but instead of starting at eight in theater, you start as early as possible in clinic and hopefully finish as early as possible uh, in clinic. Um, you then have calls third of my salary is overtime and that uh, they make me work for my money uh, at, Nel at Nelson it's it's quite difficult we do generally more calls than other hospitals just because we have fewer registrars but on average you're looking at like I'd say two calls a week um, and they generally like 30-ish hour calls I'm speaking of Nelson and the other hospitals as well you start in the morning and you don't end the next morning you end the next day when your theater list uh, is finished. Mm. So relative to other surgical disciplines, I mean, mm -hmm. you said up to 60% of your time in theatre, which to me sounds quite high. Yeah. How is that relative to other surgical disciplines as a registrar? Um, that seems to compare quite favourably. Yeah, it is. Um, I think, it, like I said, it's hospital specific. I know at the gen there's relatively less time. Um, their theatre turnaround time is a bit longer. They don't know there's many cases done. At Nelson, we're really good at maximising our theatre time. Um, I mean, like, I've never been a registrar in other, other, like, surgical units, so I couldn't say definitively. Um, I wouldn't say that, I, that it strikes me as significantly more than elsewhere. Um, so, I, yeah, I wouldn't say, like, we're better or worse in other departments, but I'm glad we do get to spend so much time in theatre. Mm. Now, surgeons um, typically, I mean, you mentioned getting to work at 5 o'clock, <clears throat> typically have very, very busy days. Yeah. Um, typically are... At, earlier than most other disciplines. Mm -hmm. A lot of the physicians only arrive to work at 8 a.m. Um, so that early, eh? <laughs> <laughs> so, so would you say that pediatric surgery offers a 
good lifestyle. Uh, I mean, obviously you're now in, in reg time, yeah. which is always demanding. Yeah. Um, but do you see pediatric surgery as better or worse in terms of lifestyle? Um, is it something that people should take into consideration? Yeah. So this is such a, a tricky one, Simon. Like I alluded to earlier, and I think not just because I'm doing it, but I think um, it would be correct to say pediatric surgery, especially on the VIT circuits, is one of the most like demanding reg times you can do. General surgery, I think, is is the same as us, if not a bit worse, maybe a bit better, who knows. Um, but it is exceptionally demanding, and I think it has a reputation for being demanding. I remember even as an intern thinking like, man, these pediatric surgeons are here all the time. Um, and there was a spell here at Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital where I was doing 27 calls in a month uh, for three months in a row. So it is exceptionally demanding, um, and it's not conducive to amazing lifestyle at the moment, I suppose, reg time. But that being said, I think like your listeners, they'll decide for themselves over time what they're looking for out of their career in medicine. Like I said to Melissa when I was in ICU, and she said, have you thought about pediatric surgery? I said, do I look like I want to work that hard? And if I could, I'd spend more time at home with my kids. It'd be great. Um, but I've been pulled into this specialty. I believe I belong in this specialty. Um, and that gets you through when you're doing a lot of calls in a month or when you're here at five o'clock in the morning. Um, not every day, but you, like I alluded to earlier, don't always trust yourself. Mm. You know, you'll feel not everything's going to be smooth sailing, but as long as you, you keep knowing that I'm on the right path, this is where I belong. I'm not a reg forever. Reg time is five, four or five years. Um, reg time is the rest of your life. No one's training to become a registrar. You're training to become a consultant. Oh, yeah. As long as you keep that in mind and you can go home at the end of the day and you know that you still want to do the thing that you're doing, um, you carry on. And I think personally, um, you need to be brave as well. Like I, I despise it when people talk about their specialty that they're training in and advise people not to follow it. Like I'm like, then be brave. Be brave and, and call it quits. You yeah. know? And, and my wife and I have said, if, if I get to the point where I don't love it and I know that maybe I'm on the wrong road, um, be brave and say, actually, I need to find something else. You know, like I said, it's never too late to change. So, yeah, if someone listening to this is like, I want to be a doctor and have a great lifestyle and that's my priority and that doesn't make you a bad doctor. Everyone has different priorities. Um, like I wouldn't recommend um, pediatric surgery necessarily. Um, I wouldn't mind a better lifestyle, but this is where I think I'm, I'm meant to be. You know, mm. Do you have a sense of calling to pediatric surgery now? Yeah, 100%. I, even very early in my MO time, um, developed a, a very s strong feeling that this is where I'm meant to be. This is what I'm meant to dedicate my life to, like the, the surgical care of children. Um, in your interview for Reg Town, no matter what you're doing, they'll ask you, why do you want to do this? Whatever it may be, psychiatry, dermatology. Why do you want to do psychiatry? Um, and in pediatric surgery, they're like the rote answers. I've already alluded to a few of them. There's like the, the massive variation in age, mm -hmm. um, the variation in pathology, mm -hmm. all these lovely things like the, the last true general surgery. Everything's always fresh. Um, like the anatomy is, that's one that surgeons love. If you're ever interviewing for pediatric surgery, you say the anatomy is pristine. And it is, it's beautiful. It is, yeah. Operating on a child is, is like pristine, pristine anatomy. Um, but those are the sum of the parts. And like my desire to do pediatric surgery is much bigger than all of them. And I said so in my interview. I said, like, this is what I feel I'm called to do. Work with kids and work with them in theater. And 
I was like fortunate enough to, to find that and not everyone does. Um, I think I was fortunate that I started something and, and developed that passion for it while I was in it. Some people are so fortunate as to develop that passion without ever actually being in it. They just know. And some people kind of never find that thing that they meant to do. So I think I was very fortunate in that regard. Yeah. So um, you have alluded a number of times to your wife mm-hmm. um, and, as well as your kids. Yes. So if I may be so bold to ask you about your family now. Um, so first of all, I want to ask you about the dynamics of being a very busy registrar yes. as well as trying to be a loving spouse and a family man. So um, how do you balance mm-hmm. your commitments to your job and to your academics? Um, and how do you offset some of the sacrifices you have to make for your family? How do you make it up to them? Sure. So I have like a few core values around this kind of topic. Um, and the one is that if I can be an excellent dad, an excellent husband, and an excellent pediatric surgeon, I'm happy. Whether there's room for all those things, um, I currently think there is, and I hope there continues to be. But that means that you have three things that you're going to be excellent at. I don't have much of a social life. I don't have many friends. Um, I exercise much more infrequently than I should. Um, but I keep those three things kind of center. And those that's what I dedicate my existence to. Every waking hour is spent being a good surgeon or being a good dad or being a good husband. Um, and I mentioned those three things separately because that's also one of like the principles that I've found is when I'm at work, I'm a pediatric surgery registrar doing everything I can to collect enough arrows in my quiver that when I finish, I'm excellent. Very good. And that's what I spend my time here doing. When I leave here, that finishes and I'm then I'm a dad and I'm a husband. Obviously, there's time at home that you need to spend studying and that is like allotted time and it's we treat that at home like I'm not there I go to the wow. study um, and and dad isn't available unless there's an emergency and then they can call me and if I'm on call um, <laughs> to help um, but yeah when I'm at home I'm present when I'm at work I'm present um, and that doesn't mean I get it right all the time but that's kind of what we found um, we had chatted a little bit about it earlier kids complicate things um, my oldest boy, John, is three and a half. And if I'm not there, he can't understand why I'm not. We do explain to him, you know, dad is helping other kids and making them better. And um, very proudly, he says when he's big, he's going to be a doctor and help daddy. I think that means in his mind because he'll get to see me more. Um, but uh, he doesn't understand why I'm not there. Whereas my wife, Liz, she can understand it. Um, she can forgive it. And so oftentimes when I'm at home, if there is a, an extra moment is spent with the boys um, as opposed to her. And she's exceptionally understanding. I, I'm very blessed to have met her and convinced her to marry me because um, she gets it. Yeah. She knows that this isn't forever and she knows that one day the boys will understand, but for now they don't. Do you think that it helps that she saw you through internship and conserve? Um, I mean, she's probably been subjected to now seven years of being a medicine widow. But, yeah. <laughs> but she's, she's seen those long hours right from junior years. Yeah. I would imagine that that helps her to kind of contextualize rage time a little bit. Yeah, I, I think so. I think two things happened. The first is we were, I said we got, we got married in my internship. 
we'd been together for five years before I started internship. And, and she'll tell you, my first month of being an intern, um, where she didn't see me, she had to have a long think about it. Is this wow. what I want? Um, and she was honest about it. And she said, I'm willing to stick by him. Um, and it's tough, eh? Because it's not like you. It's not like you're doing anything to to spite her or to wrong of her course. in any sense. Man, I can't believe how gracious my wife is. I apologize almost daily for being like an hour late getting home, or you know, Angel, I'm so sorry. This emergency case came in. I said I'd be home at six. I'm only going to be home at nine, whatever it may be, because I feel really bad, right? Which yeah. I think is normal. And she's never once said, like, I'm not happy about it. Every time she's like, cool, wow. you, you go for it. And I think that, that alludes to the second thing that I think happened with her is that she understands that this is like a calling on my life to be doing what I'm doing. Um, uh, she gets it. And, and as soon as I got it and told her, she got it, you know, it was just, it was like that. Yeah. And um, certainly our families do sacrifice a lot yeah, in man. our junior years and in our training years. That hopefully, uh, once our careers are a little bit more settled, we can kind of make up to them. But, yeah. but in this time of training, I mean, I've had conversations with registrars who have newborns at home. Mm. And imagine, I mean, I don't know when your children were born relative to your, your registrar, but imagine having to juggle like a baby yeah. uh, and Caesar pains and yeah, yeah, all yeah. of that. And your, your husband is so, so-called living his dream, living his calling in reg time. Simon, my second son was born two weeks before I started reg time. Oh, wow. So my wife has been dealing with a three and a half year How old. many medals have you put on her? <laughs> yeah, she's incredible, man. Um, I think what, what she's found hugely supportive, and this isn't always something you can orchestrate, but we live, I think, five minutes away from her parents. Okay. And that broader yeah, support having a support has also been massive. You know, um, that if she has, is having a tough night, she can phone her mom and be like, Mom, these boys are driving me nuts. Can I leave John, my oldest, with you for the night, you know? Um, and she can then just worry about Luke. Uh, so this is an interesting little rabbit hole we've gone down. <laughs> yeah, but it's all, it's all for a reason. Yeah. Because what advice would you have to somebody entering into their, their training years uh, as, a, as a registrar? And not just for men, but also for the women as well. Mm. What kind of um, things? You've mentioned supports, which is obviously yeah. a great thing. But how should people time their reg time? Is there ever a perfect time? Um, no. It's so competitive. There, there isn't. There isn't. I think it's, you know, like Liz and I discussed having kids. And we're like, are we going to wait till I'm finished my reg time? I'll be 37. You'll be 37. Are we going to start a family when we're almost wow. 40? You know, yeah. and that just wasn't on the cards. Um, and you take it in your stride. For some people, managing a family and reg time is, is too difficult. And I completely get that. So a lot of people... Um, kind of put it off um, in my experience um, it's particularly difficult for women registrars in the general surgery department at WITS there's like this mantra of they support mother surgeons mm. which I think is amazing mm. I mean my wife she also has a job not in medicine but she'll often talk about like mom guilt and I think for a mother surgeon you, you really grapple with that and as much as we feel some guilt as men yeah. um, being away from our kids, I think it's just it's a different level altogether for mother, mothers. Yeah, completely. Um, I think there's still this like societal idea that uh, dad goes out and, and uh, does work and, and mom looks after kids. And as much as that is changing, I think um, generally 
my, my female colleagues that I've interacted with, not just in pediatric surgery, but generally, um, feel more of a burden um, of, of kind of parent guilt, parental well, guilt. medicine and certainly surgery as well is becoming increasingly female. Uh, and female driven, you know? yeah. So, so when I look at healthcare, I mean, just on a wider level, a lot of our allies, physios, OTs, speech therapists, audiologists, yeah. there's there's a high concentration of of uh, female professionals there, mm-hmm. and certainly in, in medicine. And so we have to give um, special recognition to these moms that are both chasing a very very difficult career, yeah, and trying to do what's best for their family. Yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, and I note in my department when I started my reg time. I think I was the first male registrar in pediatric surgery in WITS for five years. Wow. Um, so an exceptionally female-dominated registrar body, some of whom are mothers. Um, so I've seen like firsthand with them the, the, the difficulties with it. Like that being said, everyone's honest with themselves, I would hope. And I think to myself, like, should I have waited? You know, is this too tough? And once you have a kid, you'll be like, <laughs> not a chance, <laughs> you know, like it's just the greatest thing. So everyone makes their decisions for their lives themselves um, and everyone can decide maybe oh, I don't want to wait. I want to have kids during each time, before each time, whatever it may be. There's no right answer. Yeah. But I can tell you, you will not regret having your kids uh, and having many of them. Oh, that's that's very valuable insight and input. Thank you so much for that. And also, we have to obviously recognize the other the other side of that same hand is that there will be people who say, you know what, I'm happy to be a pediatric surgeon and help other people's children without having children of my own. Yeah. Maybe they they choose their patients to be to be their children. Coming back to your speciality of pediatric surgery, how um, involved in 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 your uh, practice is instrumentation is there special tools for pediatric surgery i mean do you use the same laparoscopic um, tools that you do for adults or do you have to almost learn a whole new um, toolkit to be a pediatric surgeon um so there's a lot of general surgery principles like the core of being a surgeon that carries over from adults to kids i think the first thing to acknowledge with pediatric surgery is we've already talked about the wide array of patient demographics so you're not going to use the same instrument set you'd use on a day one of life kitty mm-hmm. on your 16 year old boy um, with an acute scrotum so sometimes we use adult sets when our patients approximate adult sizes um, and sometimes we use very very fine instruments particularly for small kids that need delicate procedures um, i talked a little bit earlier about seeing the pediatric surgeons walking around with their box of loops so oftentimes if you see us we'll have this little black and silver box and then those our loops which is like the hallmark of being a pediatric surgeon when you get yours as a registrar you're like now now i'm a pediatric <laughs> surgery registrar um, and they're basically like um, magnifying spectacles that we wear in theater um, when we're operating on little ones so yeah sometimes the sets are the same oftentimes they're difficult um, we also talk about something called your pediatric surgery hands um, generally uh, we find when general surgeons come across, when we cut with general surgeons, when they're rotating through our department as a general surgery registrar, um, th- their hands maybe aren't as fine hmm. as ours. We are, but you, we are used to working in small, delicate areas. You know, in in sur- in trauma and general surgery, they teach you know these big, you know, bold movements. You know, um, big surgeons make big cuts, um, <laughs> and a pediatric surgery is very different. Different, yeah. you know. Um, but you acclimatize, and after a small amount of time, a general surgeon finds their pediatric hands. 
Um, and, and, and some the, of that just makes sense, like a five centimeter incision on a child versus five centimeters on a 50 year old man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been in theater a lot before I got my loops as a registrar, um, doing a lot of cutting. And I remember the first time I put them on, I was doing a hernia case with one of the consultants. I put my loops on and I was trying to adjust like operating with this tiny field of vision that's magnified and everything out of that kind of field of vision is, is blurry and out of focus. And I made my skin incision for the hernia, which is like two centimeters long and I think just from muscle memory I made the incision and when I saw myself making this cut with my loops I was like is that how you know rough and in, imprecise I've wow. been without loops yeah. I, uh, I remember distinctly thinking like wow and my first thought was everyone who's cut with me while they've been wearing loops must think I'm like a <laughs> Neanderthal you know um, yeah. and you do you you have I'd say like a 15 by 15 um, spherical um, field of view that you operate on with loops and your hands should stay in that field of view the whole time you know wow. so it's small movements and you and you find your pediatric does surgery it affect hands. your depth of feel i mean you obviously have haptic feedback because you, yes. you you're working with your hands but yeah does it affect your um your recognition of depth of field and, and um, distance so you when you get measured for your loops there's this lady that comes out and does the whole measurement with the sun machine and and there's like a, a window of like your working field yes. they call it and I think it's like a 30 centimeter kind of distance away from your eyes, like a field of 30 centimeters that you tell her, this is where my hands usually are when I operate. Wow. And when they make your loops, they make it so that you can, everything within that area is focused. But anything closer, anything further away is out of focus. It's so interesting as a junior doctor to listen to surgeons speak about their practice because you, you get to recognize that there truly is an art form to being a surgeon yeah yeah is there anything that you did to train your hands as a student or a junior doctor i mean i've heard of people using their their weaker hand to brush their teeth to strengthen up their, their other hand um, so, so i'm left-handed so i think it's you know it's some it's tough being left-handed in a right-handed world absolutely are you also left-handed no i'm oh, right-handed I'm sorry. but, but uh, somebody who's left-handed described it to me this way they said you know a left-handed person when they write they see where they're going Whereas a right-handed person sees where they've been. Fair enough. Um, so anyway, I think like I think I generally use my right hand more than right-handed people use their left hand. So I don't think I, I've never brushed my teeth with my right hand to try and get it better. Um, in terms of like being better, I think if you're like a student, like no, you're not tying. As yeah. silly as it may be, my old bag had like a million knots all over it because I just I'd steal a, I wouldn't steal. I would borrow <laughs> a, a thread from from a theatre. And just like practice my not tying with my hands, you know. Um, so simple things like that. But if you're going to be a good surgeon, you'll spend enough time in theater that you won't need to not tie outside. But sure, if you want to practice, go for it. I recommend tying your knots. As you get a bit better, there's like laparoscopic training boxes that a few departments have. You can go and practice with those things as well. Um, but there is no surrogate um, to being in theater. And you mentioned, I think you mentioned earlier about like choosing your exposure. Um, <laughs> And as difficult as it may be when it's 5 p.m. and you want to go home and you're a student and you're going to go home and have fun, you know, uh, it's Friday night and your friends are going out. You'll be doing yourself such a service, staying a bit longer, not for the sake of staying longer to say like, oh, well, I stayed to 7 p.m. Look what a good student I am. But if you can stay longer and get more exposure, I think it'd be fantastic, you know. And generally when you show yourself to be willing to go that extra step as a student, I found it's rewarded by the doctors you're working under. And maybe if you're just there during the day, you're holding the retractor. But if you want to stay a little bit longer, they'll let you close skin. 
you know, on the next case. And just it's those small things like that, just spending time in theater, getting used to your hands, doing those things opposite a surgeon who can say, maybe try this instead. Yes. Um, that by the time you get to MO time or the time you get even to your registrar time, you've been in theater so much that it, that the person you're operating with goes, wow, like look at your hands, they, yeah. they're really good. Which goes back to something you said as well about being brave. Now, mm-hmm. many students don't have the courage to ask, yeah. don't have the courage, and, and junior doctors as well, we don't have the courage to say, do you mind if I do this? Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. Yeah. As, as Neanderthal-like as our hands <laughs> might be, <laughs> to, to have a go at closing skin. You know, I think mm-hmm. to, uh, to many students who are doing uh, obstetrics rotation, you know, that's their first exposure to theatre yeah. uh, for many people, and uh, first exposure to really assisting in a meaningful way in yeah. theatre. Yeah. You know, to close the rectus sheath. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's such an easy, like you can't do it wrong. <laughs> well, <laughs> then you have an incisional hernia and then you can, you can yeah. do it wrong. But, but I mean, you got but if you're doing it with someone opposite you who knows what they're doing, they're not yeah. going to let you do it wrong, right? Correct. And I think you're right. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think, um, I'm trying to think how I would react if a student said, like, can I close skin? I think everyone takes ownership of their patients and maybe particularly with kids. I'd be, I'd first sure. be like, well, do you know what you're doing? Sure. You know, maybe do um, one suture. Exactly. Let me so I think the, the thing that I would suggest that I would respond really well to if a student was in theater and they said like, I'm really interested in surgery, you know, I don't want to be a burden, but I would love to be involved. Mm. Um, almost every surgeon would respond well to that. That being said, sometimes you do have to pay your dues and sit and hold the retractor. You know, I, I've almost fallen asleep many times not not lately, but as an intern holding a retractor at two in the morning in a trauma case um, for Dr. Jennings at, at Barra. I remember it distinctly because I actually did fall asleep. Um, they were operating on a man's axilla doing a vascular repair and I was holding the retractor at like 3 a.m. and I literally nodded off and dropped the retractor. Oh my um, so sometimes you have to pay your dues and hold yeah. the retractor. But if, you, if you're there, if you're present, if you're engaged, if you're interested and you're asking questions and either overtly saying, can I do this or like kind of less overtly saying I'd love to be involved if you would let me I think you'll definitely get more reward at the end of the day wonderful yeah so what is particularly rewarding about I'm sure there's so much that's rewarding about pediatric surgery and you yeah. can probably give me an hour-long highlight reel of cases sure. but um, for you what is it something that you love doing as a pediatric surgeon any cases that when you see them on your list you're like oh I just love doing that procedure so I think generally we'll get to the specific cases now but I think generally um there's so much that I find rewarding about pediatric surgery. Like one, just just being around kids all day, man. It's fantastic. When adults sick, they like let you know they're sick. You know, they're like miserable. Like I don't want to be. Uh, kids don't know, and and unless they are exceptionally ill, they are happy little creatures. You know, um, and then the second part of that is you you have doctor to the patient, but you also doctor to the parents. Mm. You know, and that's something that I that I absolutely love being able to sit down with a parent and draw some drawings and say, this is what's wrong with your child and this is how we want to fix it, you know. Mm, sure. um, giving them like a sense of ease, like it's okay, we know what's going on and we're going to do our best to make sure like the most precious thing in your life um, is treated as well as wow. possible. It must be really tough to communicate that to, to parents who understandably are just so wracked with worry and, and yeah. fear for their child. Yeah. Uh, is there any phrase or anything that you say that really resonates? Does the fact that you're a father um, help comfort them? Yeah. So I think, so we do deal with like pediatric trauma. We also pediatric trauma surgeons as part of uh, the greater scope. Um, and we do deal a lot with pediatric like surgical emergencies. And the thing that I find is, is true for me 
there's like this saying in generally any like emergent field of medicine that you're seeing that person on the one of the worst days of their life. Like every person that you interact with at work is having one of the worst days of their life. Mm. How would you be treated? How would you want to be treated on the, one of the worst days yeah. of your life? Mm. And for those parents, even more so, like I'm seeing that mom or that dad on one of the worst days of their life. Like if I were to think of me, I would stand in front of a train like every day of my boys if I could, you know, like and let the train run back over you again. And again <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so my kid being sick scares yeah. me much more than me being sick. Wow. So I'm seeing that parent on the most scared, um, like terrible day of their life. And I just always remember that. So I think for any doctor seeing a patient who's in an emergent position, just keep that at the back of your mind. This isn't a someone you've Very met at pick and pay. Very this good. is someone who you're seeing on one of the worst days of their life. Sometimes, like when I feel called to use it, when I can see a parent is like in a particularly tough state, um, is I say like, I'm, if this were my boy, I would be doing the exact same thing to get them better. Like I know what you're going through. I'm a parent too. My boys also had operations. Mm. Um, and I'm going to do everything that I would do for my boy to get him better. And I find sometimes that does help. Like I said, it can become like super cliched if you just use it in every case, every hernia repair, I'm going to operate on your boy like he's my boy, you know? Um, and it kind of loses the, 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 the gravitas for me as a surgeon and, and also for the parents. So in times when I feel that the, the mom or dad is like particularly in that moment where they could hear that, I think I, I find it's helpful. I find it's helpful to express. Yeah. So again, I'm going to come back to ask you what is, um, the most rewarding yeah. part, uh, and what are what are some of the procedures that you just love doing? Some of the surgeries that are really fulfilling at the end of the day. Sure. Um, so yeah, specifically, a lot of people don't enjoy burns, but I really enjoy treating children with burns. Mm. Um, I said earlier, I kind of made the decision to apply when I was in the pediatric burns ICU as a medical officer, and I think that's just like stayed with me. The emergent treatment um, of a child with burns is is rewarding but i find like the the reconstructive treatment as well ex- exceptionally rewarding um i was lucky enough with one of the plastic surgeons at barra uh last year i think it was to do some like full facial grafts wow for, for two boys that had, had um uh, facial bur- uh, flame burns to their face and yeah that was just an incredibly rewarding experience and and I find anything like particularly fine and delicate to be massively rewarding. There's a whole, within pediatric urological surgery, there's even a further specialty in, in hyperspadius surgery. Um, a lot of the students that come through clinic have a vague idea of what hyperspadius is, but it's basically like a congenital deformity of the penis um, that is exceptionally difficult to treat. Mm-hmm. There are over 300 described operations for hyperspadius surgery. Wow, I didn't and, know that. Yeah, and, and anytime there's multiple ways described to treat one thing, you know no one knows the way to treat it. Mm. The disease that has one treatment, everyone knows that treatment works, you know. So hyperspadius uh, treatment and surgery is an exceptionally difficult field of pediatric surgery, um, so much so that in centers in the States, there are surgeons who call themselves hyperspadiologists. Wow. That is all they do. They dedicate their life to the treatment of one problem because that's how much exposure and time and repetition and training you need to get it you know, right. Mm. Um, and, and I find 
a surgery like hyperspadia surgery where there's like a reconstruction component to it with like exceptionally delicate work uh, to be massively rewarding. The trouble with hyperspadia surgery is it's hugely rewarding once you finish the operation and the anesthetist always looks over and says like, oh, that looks beautiful. Um, when you see it two weeks later in clinic, uh, it, looks, it looks less beautiful and, and the complications are rife in hyperspadia surgery. Wow. And then it can be a bit soul crushing to think everything looked beautiful and, and yeah. now you've got a fistula or whatever. So sure. yeah, those are like the two areas that I found particularly rewarding, but, but really I'm, I'm still exploring and uh, there's so much that I haven't done myself that I've just kind of assisted in. Which is, a, um, I think, is a fair comment because you're at the yeah. beginning of your age time. Yeah. Um, but it's nice to also see that you recognize, like, you're doing good work. Yeah. You know, yeah. Surgeons are doing God's work and, yeah, and make a difference in people's life. Um, so pediatric surgery is definitely something that has come along in leaps and bounds in the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah. Um, where do you see the practice and the study of pediatric surgery going, particularly in South Africa, because we're speaking to South African doctors? Sure. So I think in South Africa, pediatric surgery, although we like still generalists, I think we are going to see a move towards more suspect units, pediatric colorectal surgery, hepatobiliary surgery, uh, oncology surgery as examples. And I think probably in the next 10 to 20 years, you'll almost like you do in, in the States or the UK or Oz or Europe, you need a, a sub-fellowship. I think that'll probably be the case in South Africa in the next decade or two. Um, so kind of more operating in silos. I think in addition to that, um, and kind of parallel to that in a way, there's this idea of global surgery, mm. which a few of your listeners may have heard before. And that's really... Um, been a huge movement in general surgery, this idea of global surgery, which is, I think, like very, very summarized is like a pairing of public health and surgery to get the most kind of bang for your buck uh, in surgery um, for us for a set population. And that global surgery movement is, is taking hold in pediatric surgery as well, of figuring out how do we allocate our resources most adequately to help the most uh, patients. Um, and then the same advances in in general surgery, you'd expect like laparoscopic surgery and minimally invasive surgery are, are now bearing fruits in pediatric surgery as well. The general surgeon head of department um, in one of the lectures for intermediates uh, kind of alluded to minimally invasive surgery and said we want to make sure we are training world-class surgeons and part of that is training in minimally invasive surgery. Um, so that's also a huge movement within pediatric surgery as well that we're seeing um, more and more minimally invasive surgery. So I think those three arms would probably be like where things are heading. Yeah. Subspecs, global surgery, and more and more minimally invasive surgery. And I think that's a fantastic foundation to what my next question would be, which is uh, operating in a uh, slightly resource-limited setting like we do in South mm -hmm. Africa. Do you think there is anything that we're currently restricted or, or held back from doing in South Africa relative to other countries in the world with regards to pediatric surgery? Is there something that we're just not getting right? Is there something we could improve in the short or long term? Yeah. So we are, I think, for a little bit maybe, we were behind in minimally invasive surgery. Uh, and I think we're now making active steps to catch up. And I can't remember the last time I did an open appendicectomy, for example. That being said, I think like the inverse is true. I think the training in South Africa in pediatric surgery and the exposure you get is vastly superior to even Europe. That's tremendous to hear. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a, paper, by, a paper by um, Zanini et al. that anyone can look up. 
and they basically compared the logbooks of Europe-trained pediatric surgeons to South Africa-trained pediatric surgeons. And we compared favorably, I think. Not favorably. They looked, maybe unprofessional to say, but they looked like amateurish in their numbers wow. compared to the numbers that we're doing here. Um, you know, th- things that are... I remember that same Zanini et al. Uh, was this consultant who I worked under at Barra, an Italian um, gentleman who's now back in Italy in Milan. And um, the one evening, him and I were on call, and we were um, closing a gastric perforation for a neonate at like one in the morning. Um, and I remember him saying to me, like, Jason, back in Milan, mm-hmm. this operation would be done by the head of department and the vice head of department. Wow. And he said, here we are at one in the morning. Yeah. He was still a senior registrar at that time, an Italian consultant working here as a senior registrar, and I was a medical officer. And... Um, and we were there, an MO and a registrar doing something that in Italy the head of department wow. would be doing. So we really have incredible opportunities here. Yeah, our exposure is, is absolutely incredible. Which is fantastic to hear because one of the things that irks me, I'm, I'm a South African, yeah. not a South African. <laughs> sure. So when I hear people saying that they want to pursue their studies overseas because they get better exposure or better training, um, that really irks me because I feel like those people have a wrong idea of what the training in South Africa is, is meant to be. So it's so comforting, so encouraging, so exciting yeah. to hear that if you want to do pediatric surgery, uh, that South Africa is a great place to, to not only train, but to work and yeah. to, to stay. Yeah, I mean, there are a reason that our department has so many foreign registrars come and train. You know, the exposure you get here compared to overseas is massive. Like academically, I think we f- like favor, we, we compare favorably. I don't think we're behind in terms of like head knowledge, but in terms of like hand knowledge and yeah. practical experience, I think, in in my opinion, as a South African, uh, we are <laughs> we are far ahead. Tremendous. Okay, we well we're reaching towards the end of uh, this interview. Thank you so much for sacrificing so much of your time. I think your answers have been great. They've definitely come from both your head as well as your heart, and that's come come through in the interview. Um, if I was to uh, ask you some resources or. Um, things that if somebody's interested in pediatric surgery and they want to explore this topic a bit more, sure. do you have any um, uh, hints or links or tips that they should uh, brush up on? Um, so I think to get like an idea, um, you could listen to the Discover Pediatric Surgery podcast. Um, it's a podcast made by Andrew Grieve, who's the head of department here at Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital. And it covers um, kind of in broad strokes um, some big topics in pediatric surgery from biliary atresia, hypertrophic pyloric stenosis, and quite a few others. And that'll give you an idea of like the pathology that we see. I mean, if you're interested but you're unsure to either um, try and spend some time in pediatric surgery. Maybe either like, like an elective. Or... Yeah, yeah. So either doing an elective or requesting if you're an intern to be allocated to that department. Or if you're beyond that and you kind of applying for MO jobs, think, you know, six months of my life isn't a huge amount. Let me go and do pediatric surgery for six months and see what it's about. Um, so those would be the recommendations. Yeah, and if you're a student, yeah, discover pediatric surgery, get an idea, and then ask to shadow and do some job shadowing at any of the, the hospitals. Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital will be happy to have you. And, and get stuck in. You know, like you're not going to learn a lot standing at the back of the theater not being involved. Like get stuck in, ask if you can do things, look to help the junior doctors. They will appreciate every little bit of help that they can get. Um, and that will give, give you some idea. 
Okay, so if I want to just squeeze the last little valuable uh, bit that I can out of this interview. Okay. If you were to go back to your junior time as either an intern or a conserve doctor, uh, maybe even for a student doing their clinical rotations, what is something that you learned the hard way that you would love for people to know just to save them learning something the hard way, <laughs> save them some pain? Ooh. What is something you wish you could have done? Okay, yeah, that, that is squeezing the last little bit. Um, I'm trying to think if it's something like specific, uh, like don't go and scrub before your consultant scrubs when you're in theatre. That's a great. Uh, okay, that's a, that's a little tidbit. I think generally though would be like don't pressure yourself. Like I didn't know what I wanted to do until I found out what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine who's finishing in neurosurgery, well, no, finished in neurosurgery in Cape Town, knew from second year medical school he was going to be a neurosurgeon. I was always so envious, you know, like he knows. I don't know what I want to do. But you find your home, don't rush it, like get broad experience. And one day you might apply for something and after a month they'd be like, oh wow, I found this is what I want to do. So don't pressurize yourself. Everyone has different kind of ideas of how they're going to spend their medical career. And there's no perfect answer, but everyone finds a home in the end. And on that point, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, Dr. Jason McMaster. Thank you for sacrificing some time with your family and with your kids. I hope that this podcast reaches receptive ears and receptive hearts, makes a difference that people will be challenged, inspired, encouraged, and equipped to make better decisions about their career path. Thank you so much again. Cool. How many listens did you say Nadia got for trauma? Um, so far, we're sitting on just under 300. Okay. So let's see how far. Yeah, we but can that's, that. we can that's after that. a month of listeners. So. I mean, we're not competitive or anything in pediatric <laughs> surgery, but I'm sure we'll be. <laughs> Thanks very much, Simon. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode as much as I did. For links to any of the articles or the pediatric surgery podcast that Dr. McMaster mentioned, please consult the show notes posted with this episode. If you know of a consultant or senior registrar in a specialty that you would like to be featured on the Dr. Coffee podcast, please get in touch. The podcast's email address is drcoffeeza at gmail.com. That's drcoffeeza with no punctuation marks. We're also on Instagram and YouTube with the username at drcoffeeza. If you've got anything else on your mind, such as a request for additional topics, further information on how to engage with our guests, feedback on the show, or anything else, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again to the sponsors of this week's episode, FlashMed and the Wardworks app. Don't forget to give them a follow and a like in appreciation of their support. You can find links to their social media pages and websites in the show notes for this episode. The Dr. Coffee podcast is brand new and freshly brewed each week with you in mind. Please consider sharing this episode with fellow junior doctors and medical students in your world who you think would benefit from the content and enjoy. You can also help by posting a picture of your favorite warming beverage on Instagram with the hashtag HowsItBrew, that's brew with an EW at the end, and mentioning at Dr. Coffee ZA. We'll repost every mention to our story. Thank you so much for your support.